It was death, Davy's death, that was the severe mercy. There is no doubt at all that Lewis is saying precisely that. That death, so full of suffering for us both, suffering that still overwhelmed me, was yet a severe mercy. Mercy as severe as death, and severity as merciful as love. This is Pints with Jack, Season 5, Episode 50, Severity as Merciful as Love, Severe Mercy Month, Part 3. Well, good morning, or good evening, good afternoon, everyone, whenever you're listening to this. Pints with Jack is your favorite weekly C.S. Lewis podcast, where me, Andrew, David, and Matt break down and discuss the works of C.S. Lewis. After finishing our four loves this season, we had Ecumenism Month, Apologetics Month, and now we are nearing the end of a severe mercy month with part three. So, Matt, although we just caught up in our common room, that will have already aired. How are you doing? Oh, I'm doing really well. It's the, the as of the recording of this, three days ago or two days ago, I finished the massive six-month project that has led to four cups of caffeine and a day and 3.30 a.m. wake-up times and bed by eight and no social life and weekend workings. And it's done. And uh, I'm now in an adjustment period where Mm -hmm. I've detoxed. I'm 72 hours now without caffeine. I had the headaches. I took some ibuprofen. Um, I've been a little tired, but I've turned the corner. I feel more energetic today. I don't like being addicted to caffeine. And yeah, um, yeah so energy levels are up. I've been getting back to my normal like 5 a.m. wake up time, which is great, which means I can actually like stay out. And because people are always like, hey, you want to hang out? Let's go meet up at a bar like or get a, a pint at 7 p.m. And for the last six months, I'm like, I can't do 7 p.m. I'm sorry. Yeah. But now oh. I can because I can go to bed at 9, 930 and actually hang out for a couple oh, hours. Good. So are you having any satisfaction from the from the finished project, too? Oh yeah, it was. I mean, it was an incredible project. It's 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 pretty to be blunt. It's a pretty incredible um, investment process, essentially, of AI and machine learning. That's just been me and a, a person smarter than myself coding this for a while. And there's multiple more phases that'll make it even better over the next three to six months. But this one was the foundation was critical. Everything okay. else is an add-on, and so it should crush the market returns. Oh, that's great. Oh, I'm so mm-hmm. glad. That's the expectation, at least, or else it was a waste of time. <laughs> uh we just talked in the common room uh, the theme was uh, was transitions and uh, i loved how you pointed out that the enemy that screw tape really gets busy uh in in a lot of those times and so i'm mindful of the fact that you know as i as our listeners as we're recording this i'm about a week away i'm exactly a week away from the start of my new job um, as an assistant priest um I'm sure that the enemy is going to want to jump us as best he can. So uh, that's part of why I have in the background. Um, you can't see it. You can't smell it. But I've got some uh, myrrh of Bethlehem burning in my incense burner and brought up my uh, my Blessed Virgin icon. Um, mm. So uh, just employing the help of all the saints. So I love it. So Let's what are you recap. drinking today? Yeah, I am drinking actually something pretty fun. I mean, we're... Severe Mercy, we both very much love the Oxford side of it. And so I am drinking a whiskey that uh, you can only purchase from the Winston Churchill War Rooms. And so very English, 
mm-hmm. whiskey uh, visited there and I had to pick up some and take it back in my uh, checked bags. And honestly, I love this. It is so good. I have no idea if they just created this and titled it that way, or this is a flavor or something mm-hmm. similar to what Winston Churchill enjoyed. Um, I, th- I think his quote was, I got a lot more out of a fifth of whiskey a day than it got out of me. <laughs> <laughs> he was kind of been a terrible alcoholic <laughs> from all yeah. the things I've read. <laughs> but, well, in, in my denomination, and maybe in yours too, we say we're three or four gathered, there's a fifth. <laughs> so. I've never heard that, but I love that. Yeah, go ahead. Whiskey Palians, they call us. <laughs> Sadly, I am drinking uh, polar black cherry seltzer water. Because that sounds so far, gross. Oh, no, it's not bad. Black cherry seltzer water. We, Chris and I do a lot of the LaCroix or whatever, and uh, we have switched transition from sodas altogether. Hmm. Uh, I actually gave myself, I had a Coke Zero the other day. I had Chinese food, and I'm like, Man, I used to love having a soda with Chinese. It, I, I found it way too sweet for me, which is crazy because I have a huge mm-hmm. sweet tooth. See uh, Lewis fun fact. Um, Walter Hooper told me that Lewis would put four teaspoons of sugar into his tea. So wow, is that more I don't sugar know if he's tea? misremembering or what's that? That's like more sugar than tea. I'd be asking, do you want some tea with that sugar? Yeah, exactly. Should have just taken the sugar bowl and poured the tea. In, so. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's, for me, it's it's seltzer water. And uh, I think I have discovered um, uh, a place here in, in Orlando area uh, for good scotch. And so I still have our listener Bud Summers uh, gift for us uh, lurking in my wallet. And so I may even be able to buy two uh, pretty decent bottles for that. So I love it. All right. Well, uh, who are we sub- Who are we uh, toasting today? I say we toast every one of our listeners. We haven't done that in a while. Absolutely. Well, listeners, let us, uh, uh, we raise our glasses to you and we propose the toast. Um, may God bless you and give you uh, as much mercy, uh, however severely, as you can stand, and may he make you into his likeness today and forevermore. Cheers. Cheers. Oh, that is just so delicious. Mm. Mm. Uh, I'm jealous. I pretty much I wasn't I... drinking for that six month period much. Oh, really? Either. Not like for any specific reason other than I needed like super high quality sleep to maintain any sort of sanity throughout all of it and just alcohol messes with that. So like, all right, yeah, we're, we're cutting that and it was yeah. a good thing. So this tastes so delicious. Well, and I haven't, we're, we've been trying to figure out where to put my beer fridge. I have a little beer fridge with my Pints with Jack stickers and I've got my little Funko Pop Sam or um, no, not Sam, um, Mary, who's got a pint of beer. So we have not yet figured out where listeners were in that moving stage still where we're trying to figure out where all the things go. So um, I don't even know if I found a place for English beer yet. So uh, <laughs> there has been no alcohol in my life uh, for the last several weeks, which is just fine. Mm. Well, let's uh, let's do a quick little recap yeah, of absolutely. part two from the last one. So we're picking up. They were just at Oxford. And so the last part was very much about the encounter with light, the divine love, uh, going from the pagan love to the divine love. So we had their conversion. Each of them had a little bit different conversion story, a little bit different time periods. 
into different reasons why I had the conversion. And then we discussed the role that longing played in there. And we're going to talk a lot more about that in this episode explicit or specifically. And then there was a whole season in there, if you remember, of St. Udios mm-hmm. uh, and their studio and just the, the incredible intellectual rigor and community that they had at Oxford. It was incredible. They would have people constantly coming to their door and around the fireplace and enjoying some pints together and intellectual conversation and building each other up. And so they were very much taking in. And so I want, I'll just read this quote as the very last part of the last chapter that we left off on. And it really summarizes their time at Oxford. This was a time of taking in, taking in friendships, conversation, gaiety, wisdom, knowledge, beauty, holiness, and later, and later, well, there'll be a time of giving out. Hmm. And so this was all about taking in. This was that season. They had the conversion. We've all experienced it where Christ is so merciful and tender with us when when we give our life to him that he knows what we need. And a lot of times at the beginning stage, we need to take in. And there's nothing wrong with that. We need to be edified, built up. But there's going to be a point where he's going to take the training wheels off and he's going to call us to start pouring into others and to to, to maybe take out a little bit. Um, now, he'll pour in his own ways too. He'll continue pouring in to, to give you that strength. But it sounds like this is that season where it's like he's he's built them up and he knows that they're ready for this next challenge, uh, mm-hmm. which we're going to talk about in this episode. Yeah. And, and I was just going to say the final thing here is, is this part – is going to be very different. You know, they're now Christians. Everything has been going well. This first year after Oxford is going to be incredibly difficult. They call it the little dreary. Uh, they struggled a lot. Uh, we're going to witness the barrier breached. We're going to witness suffering, sorrows. Uh, and so there's going to be a lot of exploration too uh, in this time. And so I'm very much looking forward to this chapter. Hmm. It's kind of like the law of undulation that we read about in screw tape, kind of lived out. Right. Uh, and Ecclesiastes 3. I had another thought too. Um, and perhaps it's particularly poignant for me as I've moved to a new community and I don't really know anybody. And most of the people I'll know are people to whom I will be ministering or mm-hmm. among whom I'll be ministering. And so um, I just moved away from a seminary with a large and active friend group. Um, and so I'm thinking about how to kind of you know, what do I do for community? I mean, I love, I love Kristen. I was so grateful to have COVID with her. I mean, to be in the COVID period, I never got it so far, knock on wood. Um, But as I am in a new place, and I imagine that some of you listeners, some of our listeners may not, you know, may, may even use Pints with Jack because it feels like their intellectual landscape is not as, as, warm or rich or as populated as Davy and Vans were um, in Oxford. Um, just a thought. Uh, a friend of mine once said, you can put out a sign that said C.S. Lewis and lawn care, and people would show up for that talk. And so if you are in, uh, if you're in a city or a town where you don't feel like you have some like-minded people, it may be worth calling around churches and like David has done, start a, a C.S. Lewis book group. The thing about Lewis, of course, is that he really spans denominations. The Presbyterians love him and the Baptists and the Catholics and the Episcopalians, the Mormons even, uh, as we've discovered in in some of our guest guest episodes. And so it may be, um, if you're hungry for community, for that kind of intellectual life, perhaps... um, Perhaps reaching out to some churches, maybe, and and starting a Lewis book group, a monthly or a 
you know, biweekly sort of thing, maybe a way to to garner that. I don't know. I, I that wasn't in the show notes, but I just felt moved to to say that, and I I hope that you all you know find community that you love. I like that. And kicking this off, we uh-huh. they come and it starts with a struggle right away. They come back here and they had the intellectual rigor. They had the friend group. And they struggled here. One of the things I thought was interesting, they talked about a very watered-down Christianity. So they had been in Oxford and had a really rich experience, and then they moved back uh-huh. to the States. And yeah. there was there was just a very a lack of richness. Now, they did feel very blessed. They were able to create a Christian friend group very quickly. But it was more, it sounded like to me, it was a lot of their students that were coming. Mm-hmm. And so there was a fun, inquisitive, intellectual nature there. But it seemed like a little bit different than Oxford, where they were all together, iron sharpening iron. And this was more of a mentor teacher type role uh, Mm -hmm. with these individuals, but it sounds like it was very enriching to them. Uh, And then it starts to transition pretty quickly as we get into this new season of life. We've talked about that shining barrier. Van describes it as the barrier becomes breached. Mm -hmm. And the reason for this is how I understood it is Davy is very much all in. He can see it. Davy is just, honestly, she is, she's given herself to be completely, consumed and devoured by the love of God, that everything she wants to do is for him. Thus, she wants to serve. She wants to serve in the most boring way sometimes, although I don't think they were boring to her in the slightest, of going to a Sunday high school, Sunday school. And Mm -hmm. she's like, I really want to do this. And she's reading scripture in preparation for that. But then he describes it to her. He describes it here also is she just would read scripture for fun. So they were no longer reading all of their poetry and all this other stuff. It was like she just wanted to consume God, like Christianity was everything to her. Mm-hmm. And now for Van, it was important too still. It was very, but he kind of described it as he was all in intellectually. But it's almost like he didn't want to fully give up some of the old stuff. And I really loved how he described this. He said, I wanted the fine, keen bow of a, of a schooner cutting the waves with Davy and me, just Davy and me and Flurry, their dog, happy and loving and camaraderie on her decks. Well, there was nothing unchristian about that. There's nothing wrong with what that he just described there. As long as God was there too, and as long as we were neglecting those service of love. But though I wouldn't have admitted it, even to myself, I didn't want God aboard. He was too heavy. Man, I love that language right there. He was too heavy. We'll unpack that in a sec. I wanted him approving from a considerable distance. I didn't want him thinking of me. I didn't want to be thinking of him. I wanted to be free like Gypsy, which that connects to the story he tells between their, dog, a, right? yeah. their dogs. Yep. I wanted life itself, the color and fire and loveliness of life. In Christ, now and then, of course, like a love poem, I could read when I wanted to. I didn't want us to be swallowed up in God, but for Davy to live was Christ. Another incredible line. She didn't want to be a saint either. She was too humble even to think of such a thing. She simply wanted God. Totally. His service was her freedom, her joy. She loved me. She loved our sharing. But ultimately, all there was to share was Christ in his service, hmm. his service. And so there's there's just, there's just a divide that's starting to, to form. And we're going to talk about this later, almost a jealousy. I mean, Van definitely loved. Jealousy, yeah. yeah, definitely a, a jealousy. And so Van really loved that old life. And it's not that he didn't love the Christianity. He just didn't want to give up completely the old life. He wanted to have his cake and eat it too. He wanted to have one foot in each camp and not be all in. And what's interesting, we'll talk about this later and I'll, I'll get your thoughts on this, but like 
the interesting part is he probably could have had to some degree that old life if he didn't idolize it. The problem was he wanted it without God. There was probably a scenario if he really would have just surrendered to it where like he says in the beginning, there's nothing unchristian about wanting to be on a boat and a schooner with your wife and experiencing beauty. The problem was he idolized it and he would not allow God it at all. God might've actually allowed that life to happen. You know, uh, there's so much of, uh, and and I love how this, how this brings, uh, brings through so many of the themes. You know, we talked, I think last time, about how in mere Christianity, Lewis says, God says, give me all. I don't want just so much of your life. You know, I don't want this room or that room of your house. I want to tear the whole house down and build a palace because I'm coming yes. to live there. I don't want to treat the tooth. I want to have it out, right? I don't mm. want to trim the tree. I want to pull it up by its roots. Um, and the kind of life that that Van um that that uh, that Van is is hankering for this kind of polite God being politely coming in and coming out of his life when it was convenient for Van um, mm-hmm. is in fact what you were saying is idolatry and mm-hmm. you know, as I've mentioned I think I mentioned the last episode or two I've been thinking about and reading about idolatry um, in some of my theology classes and the theologian Kate Sonderager sees idolatry as the great evil of our era. And this is Van creating God in his own image, in Van's own image. He wants God when God is convenient for him, mm-hmm. rather than wanting God to make what's convenient change, right? And so it's Van trying to set the tone, which is putting ourselves in charge when God's really in charge and we need to acknowledge that God is in charge. And that, frankly spoken, is idolatry. It's when I set up anything that is related to God, but isn't really God and mm-hmm. more smacks of my the work of my own hands. And so idolatry has a lot to do, I think, with selfishness. And that's, you know, that's that's something that's easy for me to do. You know, I, I'm going to be a professional churchman, going to be real easy for me to do the service really well and, you know, do all of the duties, but lose the primacy of my personal contact with God. And so instead of creating God in our own image, um, let's let God create and recreate us in in his image. And sometimes it's difficult. Uh, God has to really kind of grab our attention in order to get through uh, the, the noise of our own idolatry. I won't go down too much of a tangent here. I'll just tease us up to offer for listeners a bit of a vulnerability and an example of this playing out. But this this hit me because... This is to some degree what I do. I would mm-hmm. say I've given him 90%, maybe. I mean, I'm, that's a number, but this last three months has actually revealed a lot to me. And I want to say, you know, I've talked about that healing journey. I kind of put it on pause to some degree as I went through this busyness with work. And it revealed to me how I couldn't, I neglected a ton of spiritual practices these last three months. And I know there's a balancing active yes with work. You have a fiduciary duty. I run the business. I have to be, I have stuff to do. But I, I mean, I like neglected prayer life to a degree. And, and really what saints always tell you is, is when you're busy, you pray 30 minutes a day. When you're busy, pray 60. I prayed zero, maybe not zero, mm-hmm. but you know, dropped it from like 30 to five. Um, and, and I'm not proud of that. I actually went to confession about that, but I almost like couldn't do anything about it because letting this fail, what I'm doing was, is like an idol. And I just wouldn't let it happen. And I put it in front of 
my relationship with God. I, I couldn't, I couldn't like say what in reality I should have continued my spiritual practice. Of course I can work 12, 14 hours a day and still do my spiritual practice. There's plenty of time to do that. But I was just like, I sacrificed. I was tired. I was exhausted. At the end of the day, I was like, I don't want to pray. I'm just going to throw on a 30 minute TV show and fall asleep at 730 and wake up the next day. And it's hard, but, you know, I talked to Paris a little bit about it yesterday in confession, but I need to go meet with a spiritual director. Like that is, you know, I've, I've alluded to a little bit the, the healing journey I need to go on and that, and people have asked me, I've literally family members have asked me like, what do you keep talking about all this brokenness? <laughs> like worried that I'm sitting here doing drugs on the side or something. It's not that, but it's like, there's a, there's an idol that's and I can easily see it. And it's, it's, it's a fear of failure and it's desire for success. That's completely out of God. And, and that's. Mm -hmm. Worse, ironically, and it, it as much as people in the world might not say it, than going and doing drugs on the side. I'm almost, I almost wish that was my issue. <laughs> um, <laughs> it might be a little bit easier to deal with. Uh, and so, I mean, that that's something that I, I really recognized. In, and I'm past the season, this last three months, I finished this project, and now I really want to find a spiritual director to help me through, okay, God is number one. And mm -hmm. I should have, you know, let failure be an option and just surrender it to him. Because mm -hmm. if, if, if it, it did end up happening, it would have been because he wanted it to. And if he really wants it to succeed, me giving him an hour a day was not going to stop it from succeeding. He's going to make it happen. And even that failure could have turned into a severe mercy for you if- 100%. I could not accept that. I could not accept that. That was not an option. It was never an option in my mind. Even though he can still make- The irony is going to- Now I'm jumping way ahead to some degree because we're talking about like when- Davey was killed and his desire, he might kill this because of what I just did. You could actually argue because this is an idol. And what I did actually might increase. I mean, it's hard to, to, to try to put work. You don't want to speculate too much what God's will is, but like there's an argument to be made that by me doing that, that could be killed. And so I, I'm very conscious of it. And let me clarify too, that, um, you know, if, if this big project that you just, you know, that you just completed does fall away it's not out of punishment because you set God aside, because that's not how punishment works with God. Um, it's out of punishment, love. judgment, these are always invitations to a deeper sort of mercy, right? Mm -hmm. And so if you continue, and you know, it's ironic that Lewis would use this term that maybe Davy's death was a severe mercy for Van because Lewis lost his own wife just a, a couple of years later is the great irony. You know, I too have been in this transition, you know, and moving. It's been a struggle to keep up my prayer life. Um, and and really easy to kind of set that aside. Um, Bible reading every day is something that I've been doing for years where I read through the Bible every year. And man, I'm weeks behind. And so the last couple of days and even the last couple of days, I've missed another day of, of it. But I've been trying to catch up doing four daily readings, you know, a day just to, to catch up. I think that because the, there are really weighty issues and important issues at stake, our hearts are at stake, right? And our livelihoods. I think the enemy would really love for us to, certainly for me, to get off the path. I'm about to start working at a church. Never worked at a church before. Um, isn't that the great, a great idea? Let's make sure that his prayer life is pretty barren. Let's make sure that he's not taking in the, the right kind of stuff. Um, and I think that that's part of what happens with Van. Um, I don't think God killed Davy with cancer because Van was, you know, jealous of God. I think that it's the circumstances in our life happen and we're not really sure the side of heaven, why they happen. Uh, but God can use even the most untoward circumstances in order to bless us and make us closer to him.
even if the enemy does horrible things, um, God is not daunted. God is not thwarted. And in the end, he will make all things work together for good. How do I say that in the light of a Uvalde, in the light of a Ukrainian war, in the light of inflation, in the light of all the kind of difficulties that we face? Look at history. God will always be glorified and he will always work things together for good. And I hope that doesn't sound blithe. I just know that God's not done writing the story. And that's part of what Van is struggling with, even as he writes his own story, realizing that um, that God will have no rivals and will do whatever it takes to win all of our heart uh, for mm-hmm. him. And he'll keep wooing us and and keep uh, keep pursuing us. Well, and we're going to we're going to circle back to that question of of Davy's death. And I like some of the stuff that you've already teed up here. So it'll, uh, it'll, it'll segue nicely into that when we get there. So yeah, so now we're at the part where they had the barriers breached. So this was the shining barrier that they had created to keep everything, their, their family, everything uh, away, everything out of uh, protecting a barrier between the whole world and their own love. You know, mm-hmm. and creeping separateness and selfishness and all the rest. And so they had kind of made an idol out of their love. And so now Christ has come crashing through the barrier and has saved yes. them both, more more so Davy to some degree. Yes. They had that appeal to love, which was any time there was something in jeopardy that could, well, jeopardize that shining barrier, they would appeal to that. They would make the decision that was best for their love, not any of the individuals, but for their love. Well, that's also been tarnished. Um, he knows, Davy or Van knows that he can't appeal to that because for Davy, it's more about what God wants. And so they don't really speak about it. It goes unspoken, but it's an elephant in the room that is very tangible, at least as the way Van more or less described it. And Davy senses it. But rather than necessarily talking about it, he kind of describes his animals couldn't talk about it. So he intellectually knew that you can't really argue against this is a good thing, but it's just, it emotionally wasn't. She goes one night into the spare bedroom and she just kind of fakes it as I'm a little sick or something. I need to go over there and just rely. And she prays all night, like a saint on her knees. And she offers up her life for Van. She asks for, I think at this moment, she asks for another year. I guess she had some stuff she wanted to complete, but she, she offers it up. And she offered it, and this is what it says, to the Lord that Van's soul might be fulfilled. I think she sensed that he was in this middle, this almost like this, this state of in-between where he intellectually accepted Christianity, but he still wanted some of his old life. He wasn't really ready to fully surrender himself. And it was leading to a, a, a an unfulfillment, honestly. If you're half in one camp, half in the other camp, you're, you really have neither of the camps and you're really unfulfilled. And there's almost like, yeah. And so she offers herself up that that would be uh, taken away. And I, my first thought with that, Andrew, and you'll like this from the four loves, is <laughs> when she she's received the divine love in her life, she has fully. And it is, it, as much as interestingly enough, Van was jealous of that because he wanted the old way. Ironically, she was loving him better than she could have ever loved him. And this is such a beautiful example of that. She is literally loving him better right now, despite he's jealous and mad that this is even happening to some degree, subtly, but she's loving him better. I mean, she's literally offering her her life up for his fulfillment. So wait, a person meets the God of love 
and is so in love with the God of love and so loved by the God of love that she sacrifices herself and offers herself to the God of love for the sake of the person that she loves most and who the, the, the one who had been most intimate and most important to her in her entire life and dies for the sake of that person who is angry and bitter and jealous about it. I'll take a drink it. now. <laughs> Didn't say a word. That took me like... 15 seconds to see where you're going with that. Oh, my goodness. I'm embarrassed that that took me. Well, I mean, it is. It's still we have faces. It is the pattern of till we have faces. And in fact, in the book, they discuss till we have faces, Van. Oh, and this just killed me. Wait, I thought, didn't she die before till we have faces would have been written? It was written in 55. Joy wasn't a part of Lewis's life when she died yet, right? Or was she? When did she die? I forget what I have no was. idea, but I was under the assumption that when he's talking all about grief, you know, Joy hasn't, I'm not sure Joy's, she was only in the picture briefly before her death. Like, So let's see. Yeah. Um, Joy was not on the scene. Okay. The reason I see. bring all this up is because um, I'm slightly curious because the funny part is this, you are correct. It's about the identical story. And we know that he had sent that long, long letter that practically paraphrased her entire at the end of his journey, when Lewis sends the whole letter back on the severe mercy, which we're about to unpack in probably mm-hmm. 10, 20 minutes, he pretty much summarized his love for Davy, which was probably the first draft of this book, if you think about it now, like a 10-page draft. But he sent that to Lewis. Ironically, Lewis heard this story before he probably wrote The Four Loves. This, I mean, um, Till We Have Faces is my hypothesis right now. I don't know if that's true. Okay. So it's a, chrono- it's a chronological uh, question that I need to track down. Um, But I do want to mention that uh, page 227 in Davies edition. um, She died 1955. Oh, when? What date? That uh, 17th of January. Okay. So she dies right before uh, Till We Have Faces is written. Do you think he was writing it by that point? What's that? Do you think he was already writing it by that point? Uh, it's spring. It's uh, spring of 55. Um, okay. Again, we have that have from, Joy, the, from Joyce He would have letters. sent that long letter of his entire story to Lewis in like March or April, it says, a few months after. Right as he's writing till we have faces. Uh-huh. That's and, fascinating. Uh, in the chapter, in the epilogue, The Second Death, he says, uh, in some letter, this is Van, in some letter I had expressed the idea that Jane in that hideous strength was sort of a stereotype. And in his reply... Now regrettably lost, he said that I should have a look at the woman in his next book. She was Orwell, and the book, one of the greatest novels of the century, Van says. (laughs) Wait, Van says that? Van says that, I think, was Uh Till We Have Faces. Orwell was no stereotype. She was indeed a great character. Again, a grand evening of talk. So, yes. So you guys can, you know, obstinately hold off on your uh, incorrectness. (laughs) But, you know, most of our authors agree and, you know, our, certainly our signal author agrees. That, that anyway. is a hard one to argue with. David and I are currently arguing against Sheldon Vanauken and C.S. Lewis. Yeah. Well, you know, you can, you can keep, you know, kicking against the goads as much as you'd like, but it's not going to work out very well for you. <laughs> so. Well, so let, we'll bring it back to this here. Sure. I, I, I think that was a good tangent. Um, so this part ends... 
essentially with, and what I mean by this part is a little dreary year, which was essentially the year after Oxford. There's mm-hmm. this barrier breached. There she offers her life up. He does not know this yet at this point. She doesn't come back into the room and tell him. He finds out in this beautiful moment, roughly a year after Oxford, he decides to put this photo up, surpriser of this cathedral, this beautiful, timeless moment. He puts on this music, the the Requiem Mass or something like that. Requiem. It's a Requiem. it's a it's a mass. It's a death mass. It oh, comes okay. from Requiescat. It comes from to rest, but hmm. it's from rest in peace, Requiescat in pace. Hmm. Right. So a Requiem Mass is a mass of the dead. Oh, beautiful. So yeah, so he puts his music on in the background, kind of surprises her with the photo. It's just a very intimate, beautiful moment. And it was the moment he realized that like, it's okay that this barrier has been breached. And he he just felt a very a sense of peace and her and Davy, him and Davy were still one. And that was the night that she told him about the horror and dread is the words that he describes it as. So now we fast forward, and it's not much longer, honestly, after that, that he finds out that she's terminally ill mm-hmm. and that she has roughly a year to live. Mm. And when he tells her, I thought this was very beautiful. You know, he's struggling. He finds out and waits a few days to tell her, honestly. He needed to process this. He had a whole prayer team and warriors going around him. In, in, oh, Sorry. Oh, it's it just yeah, – Yeah. Go ahead. No, keep going. I just don't uh, – it it bothers me. It, I remember when I reread it. Uh, it bothered me that he kept her news from her. You know, I did think that was interesting for this, a number of days. Yeah, this seemed very very paternalistic. It seemed more 1950s. selfish than anything. Um, yeah. Of like he needed to process it first to tell her. It's like this is her news. I agree. But anyway, sorry. But it was a very beautiful moment when he did tell her, mm-hmm. and her response was incredible. So they go for a little drive, and he says, "Dearling." This illness is maybe going to mean our parting. Yes. Uh, and she smiled through the tears and said in a husky voice, let it all be according to his perfect will. Mm-hmm. I really thought that was a beautiful moment. And, and what we're about to embark on mm-hmm. is the next part that I wanted us to chat about was, you know, they go through a number of, I don't know if it was, I think it was roughly a couple months, a few months well, I guess it was a year. So never mind. So it's about a year. But they eventually, he kind of fast forwards over the next number of periods pretty quickly of just her in the hospital and mm-hmm. what that journey looks like. And sorry, let me rephrase one thing. It was not, it was a year from when he told her after he told her this, it was not a year. She probably died within a, shortly after him telling her this. And so she's in the hospital. And one of the most beautiful things that I had seen was her strength and her impact. You know, she's in, I I, I read a book called I almost said surprised by joy. <laughs> a witness to joy. It's a witness to joy. Incredible book. Very similar of a, of a mother dying of cancer and, mm-hmm. and, and her journey of joy throughout that and spreading Christ's joy. But I was just amazed. I want to read a few different things of just the impact that she had in the season where honestly, it should be all about her. She should be resting. She should be selfish. She should be getting, but that's just not how she, she genuinely was. It seemed like, at least as Davey, as Van wrote it, like a saint. When friends came with love to cheer her up, they went away cheered and strengthened. Her love and strength flowed out to them. One of the students later did a painting of David, Davy, smiling in the light, leading a darkly silhouetted student towards a tree, the tree. So literally the painting is Davy, this light leading a darkened person to it. And yet Davy is dying right now. I mean, how beautiful. Yeah. You said uh, we should be, she should be selfish. You know, it should be all about her. But of course, it's 
that's that's the 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 inversion that happens in the Christian life. And mm-hmm. because she is getting close to death, she's getting close to her sanctification. Mm-hmm. She's getting yes. close to heaven and mm-hmm. getting close to being completely whole. And so yes. why wouldn't she shine light towards others? And mm-hmm. we also see, you know, Philippians, it's the kenosis again, that Christ for the glory, for the joy set before him, overcame the shame of the cross. And so she, in loving Christ, is trying to be Christ-like and is and is doing that. And that's a good lesson for us. I mean, and as you and I have talked about, you know, our, our struggles, um, as we're getting closer to these good things, we should be the ones giving out. We should be the ones ministering. We should be the ones, you know, who have something to offer. And certainly it's it was true for her. I did zero ministering the last three months. <laughs> Um, it's terrible. And I was not dying. <laughs> and then it says here, this is about the hospital. And I love this part. I mean, I just love all of this. Oh, yeah. this last third is why I love this book. I think I realized, you know, we talked a little bit more tapered of our, our love of this book. And the last time we recorded the last two, I hadn't mm-hmm. actually fully got to the third part yet and finished it in a beautiful sense. Mm-hmm. I'm back to loving this book by this last, yeah. this last third is just yeah. incredible. She obediently did everything the doctors and the nurses told her to do. Everything except stay in bed when someone else was in need. Over and over again, she was discovered out of bed in the night, sitting beside some other patient who was suffering, soothing her, holding her hand, praying for her. Later, I was to get dozens of letters, some almost illiterate, from people who had been in the hospital with her, saying that she had helped and sustained them. One said she was like an angel of God. Like that actually moved me a little bit, not fully to tears, but a little bit of water of like, I don't know if I could do that. I really don't. I mean, honestly, if I'm being fully self-near up to myself, I really don't think I can do that. I'd probably be like, how do I self-preserve, try to heal myself? That just didn't cross her mind. Um, and then the final thing I'll say on this, and, and you can say anything if you'd like, is... Um, hmm. He finds out at the end of the season, you know, she's now passed. The hospital and the doctors wouldn't charge them a dime for the time that she was there because they said Davy did more for them through her joy, compassion, and kindness than they did for her. Think about that. That medical bill would have been six figures today. I don't know what it would have mm-hmm. been there in England um, mm-hmm. for being in there on a cancer treatment day in and day out. Um, they wouldn't charge him a dime mm-hmm. because she did more for them than they did for her. I mean, that is just incredible. Well, and it's only Christ, I think, that can do that. Yes. But Christ can and does do that. I mean, we know that Mm -hmm. the way to heaven is the way of pain and death. We know that by his stripes, we are healed. It reminds me of of the wonderful story uh, from Francis Collins. It's in my book, Mere Christians. And he's, uh, he's mentioned it in several places. Is he the scientist? Yeah, he was. He yeah. just retired as the director that. of the NIH. He was yeah. Anthony Fauci's boss. That's and Francis is a marvelous yeah. believer. He was the head of the Human Genome Project. He was a speaker That's at Oxbridge. That's how I know him. Yes. Yeah. Um, I got to in- introduce him, and in, I think he came in 2011 and got to introduce him. Sweet, kind so cool. man. Yeah, wonderful guy. He's now um, President Biden's uh, science advisor. Uh, oh, that's so, great. But- he was raised as an atheist and was an atheist through his education, his early career. And he met um, a woman, he kept meeting people in the hospital who were dying of terminal cancer and he was treating them. Um, and they would be filled with joy. 
And so once he asked uh, this woman, he said, why are you so full of hope and full of joy um, when you're facing this horrible, these horrible things? And she said, well, Dr. Collins, it's because of what I believe. What do you believe, Dr. Collins? And he realized that he had dismissed the claims of Christianity without examining their merits, mm. which is a bad scientific approach. That's bad empiric yeah. empiricism. And so he began exploring Christianity, and mere Christianity was a big part of his story. But this thing of meeting joy where joy doesn't make sense, um, and it doesn't make sense. Because That's a great line, Andrew. Meeting joy where joy doesn't make sense. Yes. You should quote that one. <laughs> that is that is like a platitude that should be put on a, a mirror. Well, and it's the Christian or maybe you rephrase it: be the joy where joy doesn't make sense. Rejoice when rejoicing doesn't make sense. And, and ooh, we, boom, Andrew. Well but we we say that in liturgical in the liturgical service. It's the sursum cordum prayer, um, mm -hmm. and you know this. And and your our Lutheran listeners and maybe our Methodist listeners are certainly our Episcopalian. Lift up your hearts, they say in the mass, and we all say in response, we lift them up to the Lord. Thank the Lord. Right, uh -huh. but lifting up our hearts is an act of joy. It's an act of elevating when circumstance doesn't, when the immediate circumstance doesn't seem to call for rejoice. And it's just an echo of what St. Paul told us to do in Philippians, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say, as if you weren't listening, and as if doing so is an act of the will, we weren't listening, and it is an act of will to rejoice, right? Um uh, the second chapter of Acts had an old song where they said, I may be taken by my sadness and still be filled with joy. So joy is an act of speaking heavenly faith into earthly circumstance, especially when it doesn't make any earthly sense, right? To rejoice doesn't mean to celebrate. It means to lift up my heart. And this is part of what Davy is doing. She's rejoicing even in the midst of her pain. And I think that that's a great, uh, a great example for all of us to, to at least attempt to follow. Well, I'm only going to tease it here and we're going to turn to the way of grief. At the end, I created us a little opportunity to just talk about what really we loved about this book. And we've talked about a little bit the naivety, potentially a little bit the privilege of the beginning of their life and all that stuff. There was an openness to both of them that was just truly beautiful. Mm -hmm. I mean, how she was open to truth, how she was so quick to just from an atheist to all in. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's just an incredible disposition. Honestly, I'm jealous of that disposition. I've spent more time than she did understanding the intellectual. I'm like Van. Honestly, I've had the intellectual conversion. And of course, I've I've jumped in. But like I said, it's not all in. I mean, it really isn't. There's no way I can sit here and truthfully, authentically say it's 100% all in. Um, and it's, it's just, I'm jealous of it. Like it was just, there, there's such a, a, a willingness to surrender, a disposition to surrender to what you believe in. At first it was not the greatest truth in the beginning, but there was some beauty to the truth, but it was false or incomplete. And now it's like, once you found the fullness of truth, boom, all in. I'm just jealous, mm -hmm. jealous. Mm -hmm. But we'll talk about that. Oh yeah. Go ahead. If you have something. Yeah. But I mean, what time is bedtime for you? Nine o'clock tonight? We got plenty of time. You got I, you got three and a half hours, and you yeah. can be all in between now and the end of the day. 
You know, mm-hmm. what does following Jesus, it doesn't necessarily mean going out and starting a whole new ministry, ministerial society, but what does being all in look like for you between now and the end of the day? You know, for a minimum, I've got a whole stack of books over there for the, 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 I'm, I'm starting to do, it's a new thing I'm doing, Liturgy of the Hours, uh, uh, Evening Prayer. Yeah. So just started yesterday. Already missed the evening prayer yesterday. <laughs> sure, sure. Got the morning prayer. <laughs> yeah. But um, remember what Mother Teresa says that, you know, uh, what God wants is us to do small things out of a great love for him. Yes. Right? Even just being mindful of him. And what we're doing right now, I mean, you worked a full day and then we're, we're doing our duty as hosts of this podcast. We are doing what we can. We could be all in. And it doesn't have to be this marvelous, magisterial, you know, incredible thing. What does saying yes to God, what does saying yes to my love for the people in my life look like between now and the end of the day? And I only have four or five hours left in this day as we're recording it in the afternoon. What does that look like for me? And yes, I mean, St. Paul says, let's consider how to spur one another on to love and good deeds, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, and Davy is here, even after her death, spurring us on to go, what does obedience to God, what does loving, what does repentance look like in the hours between now and bedtime today? And that I can do. I can do something for half a day. I can do something over the next three hours. It may be cook dinner for my wife or, you know, finish building the piece of furniture that I have hey, downstairs waiting to finish. You should cook dinner for your wife. I'm going to c- hold you to that. Dude, I cook dinner for her all the time. I love doing oh, that. All right. Well, um, that's not, never mind. But I've got a piece of furniture. I've got a mess there that I go. made. You know, I've got a box that I should unpack and make things look better. You know, um, what can I do to say yes to God, to say yes to others? And there are generally pretty commonplace answers at our hand to do. Um, so yes, I think that we should kind of be after ourselves when we when we you know fall down. But we can also say yes between now and bedtime. Well, I'm going to combine these next two sections because the final one we need a lot of time for. Van then went through a period, so Davy has now passed, uh, mm-hmm. and he goes through a grieving period. And I want to get a little bit of your thoughts on grieving, but I'm just going to combine these next two. But then pretty quickly turns to this illumination of the past. He he needs to go through everything from photos to journal entries to poems. He rereads poems at the time when they did it and the progression that they had it to just experience it, feel it, document it. Yeah, this illumination of the past is in capital letters. He does this kind of yes. examine. It's an it's an examine. Yes. If you're familiar, it's a great with that way of phrasing it yeah. of their life. And this also helps him ultimately write that letter I mentioned briefly earlier. That's like probably the beginning stages of this book to Lewis. And he here's what he says. I mean, they were doing he was doing a month or two per day, you know, going through this. But we're talking about 10, 20 years. And so, I mean, this was definitely taking some time, a couple months to put all this together. But he said, I had assembled and put into chronological order hundreds of letters Davy had written over the years. I had the diaries and journals we had kept. I had our paintings done in their various periods in our photograph album. But I had gone further than these helps. I had searched out and bought recordings of music we had liked and merely chanced to listen to a good deal in some period, including especially English Lavender. I had all our favorite poems of the years. I had already been re-reading meaningful books from our past but I had saved some of the dearest ones until now. So, I mean, he really dove into this of just piecing this all together. It was like how he processed this. I love how he talks about as he's going through this, he's experiencing these moments with Davy. 
mm-hmm. again, except obviously she's not there, but he's still experiencing them through this experience. And he's full of tears. Mm-hmm. But what he would say is then if he redid that same experience, he wasn't quite as tearful anymore. So it's like he experienced the loss of the acknowledge that she is no longer there in that experience, grieved it, felt it, and then went through it. And this really reminded me of a very simple book, but that I do enjoy, Mitch Albom's Tuesdays with Maury. Mm. He says, uh, have you ever read that book? No. So he's meeting every Tuesday with this Maury guy who is dying and and he talks about going through emotions. That was some, that was probably my number one takeaway from that entire book of you should have feel it. Don't don't suppress it, feel it, but then go through it. You know, after mm-hmm. you've experienced it, you let the emotions hit you, the sadness, the sorrow, whatever it is, and then go through it. That was an advice that Maury gave mm-hmm. uh, the main character. And so the one question I wanted to ask you here before we turn to uh, a severe mercy part of it, the very final part, which we're going to have a lot to talk about is, what are your thoughts about this? I've never read a grief observed. You know, mm-hmm. He's talking about experiencing this, going through this. What? How, how would you connect this with Lewis's a grief observed? Do you think that there is truth in this, how he handles grief and he's going through it, that you should you should let it hit you, feel it, cry, whatever you need to do, and then go through it? Well, yes and no. I mean, having been through some personal grief, uh, you know, I've lost my own, I've lost both of my parents. Um, mm-hmm. There, I've gone through some difficult, very difficult um, phases in my life. Um, grief doesn't work the same way for anybody and you can't really prescribe grief and there's not really a pattern because it goes all over the place. So um, Grief Observed is certainly one of the best books that I've ever found on that book or uh, on that topic. Um, and part of what Van is doing I recognize because when I went through grief, one of the things they say, time heals all wounds, which I think is nonsense. I think time plus work plus the grace of God heals a lot of wounds. But some of what has to happen and some of what happens in time is whatever it is that I'm grieving becomes proportionally smaller in my life right? So my father died in 2014. Now I have eight years of living without him. And I had 48 years of living with him before. And so I have um, one sixth of my life has been lived without my father. Eight years ago, I had 0% of my life had been lived without my father being alive. And so to have it be a smaller proportional part of my story. And story is a keyword as well. I think that part of what Lewis does in A Grief Observed, what he's doing in that book is keeping a journal of the of his grieving Joy Davidman after she dies of cancer. Um, and it's about six months worth of journals and he publishes them. Van is doing a similar thing. He's organizing, mm-hmm. he's going through, he's trying to tell a story because a story has an arc. It has a beginning. It has an, a, an end. It's got these characters that happen and then it becomes this thing. And so, you know, when I went through uh, a real troublesome time in my life, immediately after it was just incredibly fresh and all I could feel was pain. But it became a story that I told sometimes for hours on end to people that I would talk to. Now it becomes this thing that I could describe in five seconds or a minute or whatever. And it becomes a smaller thing and part of my narrative, but not all of my narrative. So part of why, and he talks about 
at the end in his epilogue, he talks about why it took so long for him to write and what his process was. He had to, in some ways, assemble the story, read through the story, and then add the ending of Davy's death, and then add the whole long epilogue of his life after Davy's death, um, which he never wanted, but it becomes part of this narrative thing. So in some ways, it's the retrospective trying to tell the story that um, becomes for us, you know, kind of part of part of going through the grieving process. The only other thing I'll say about grief, and I hope this helps for those who go through grief, the loss of somebody or something, you know, deeply tragic. In the first year, the only good thing, especially about the anniversaries, the Christmases, the birthdays, all the rest, the only good thing about the first year is that you only have to go through the first Thanksgiving without that person once. Right. Mm -hmm. It's just all pain for a year. And all of those events are all pain. But after it becomes the second time, it doesn't have quite the poignancy. And that's part of what Van is doing is figuring out what that story is and how to tell the story. Even writing this book is him processing his grief. Now, don't get me wrong. I mean, it's my father's been gone for eight years. And there are, you know, if I think about it, I can be instantly in tears about my father's death. I mean, the poignancy, you know, is still there, but it becomes part of a larger thing. And I think that that's some of what, uh, what he's going through here. And I don't know. I hope that, I hope that, that listeners will, will find that helpful. Mm-hmm. I hope some listeners may find that helpful. No, I appreciate that. I think that that is uh, very much so helpful. So now let's move to the very final chapter. And mm. it's titled A Severe Mercy. I think <laughs> we're already at the hour mark. We're going to go well over this hour because... there's just so much in this. That's incredible. Um, This is about four months, he says, after Davy's death. So he's now gone through the illumination of the past for the the last few months. And he's written some letters to Lewis. So there's been some interactions back and forth. And he's had, he says, two strong thoughts. And these are pretty powerful thoughts. And I think there's a lot of wisdom in these thoughts. We're going to unpack these thoughts. The first one he titles, and we're going to put it this division, Time and Eternity. In the second one, God's eternal mercy. Uh, and this is what he closes everything with. So let's let's turn our attention first to this idea of time and eternity. So you remember, listeners, hopefully, in the beginning when we talked about how he mentions unpressured time. And they have this whole view of unpressured time. Time, and he says, time to sit on stone walls, time to see beauty, time to stare as long as sheep and cows. Mm-hmm. And... He has this thing, I think it was in the prologue, actually, where he's like, timeless moments make eternity. And then the awareness of duration or terminus spoils the now. So he starts realizing as he looks in their life, he's looking back at this whole idea of the schooner and the gray goose and uh, all this stuff, that there's this, there's this desire for this timelessness mm-hmm. in them. So here's some things that he says. I'm just going to quote him. God created time. If, indeed, that is so, if God is eternity and time is a created thing, then Davy must now be divorced from time and in eternity. Mm -hmm. He said, I saw with immense clarity that we had always been harried by time. All our dreams back there in Glen Mary had come true. The schooner, gray goose, under the wind, the far islands of Hawaii, they spent some time there during the war, in the dark blue rolling Pacific, the spires of Oxford, you know, all their dreams kind of came true of these timeless visions that they had of this beauty. 
But all the fulfillments were somehow, it seemed to me, incomplete, temporary, mm-hmm. hurried. Mm-hmm. We wished to know, to savor, to sink in, into the heart of the experience, to possess it wholly. But there was never enough time. Something still eluded us. And then I'll keep continuing here. The timelessness that seems to reside in the future or the past is an illusion. We dreamt of Grey Goose by the pool at Glen Merrill, dreaming of the schooner sailing into the quiet lagoon of some far out time or time free. In reality, the log to write, the meal to get, the the top soil to be mended, the holiday trip to... Top sale. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Top sale to be mended. The holiday trip to England is full of timeless images. The moments in Wells or Coventry Cathedral, the long talks with Peter or Jane, the hours in the peaceful countryside. In reality, even without the fearfully time pressured guided tour, there are trains to catch it, shirts to wash, sleep to get, rooms to book before it's too late. The future dream charms us because of its timelessness. And I think most of the charm we see in the good old days is no less an illusion of timelessness. Hmm. We live in time like the air we breathe. We love the air we breathe, but we tend to not love time. Rather, we tend to desire the timeless. Why is that? It Hmm. suggests that we have not always been or will not always be purely temporal creatures. It suggests that we were created for eternity. Not only are we harried by time, we seem unable, despite a thousand generations, even to get used to it. We are always amazed at how fast it goes, how slowly it goes, how much it is gone. Where we cry has the time gone. We aren't adapted to it, not at home in it. If this is so, it may appear as proof or at least a powerful suggestion that eternity exists and is our home. Mm -hmm. So it appeared to me, it appeared to me that Davey and I had longed, we're going back to longing, guys, for timelessness, eternity, all our days. And the longing coupled with my postmortem vision of the total Davey whetted my appetite for heaven. Golden streets and compulsory harp lessons made lack appeal. (laughs) But timelessness? In total persons, heaven is indeed home. Mm. I'm going to pause there before I read what Lewis said. It's like he's having this realization that everything up until now, all of those desires, particularly in that pagan love phase, were all pointing to one thing, eternity. Mm -hmm. Well, and we remember from the Screwtape letters, Lewis's letter on time. And he says Mm -hmm. that now is the moment where time touches eternity. Right. Boom. The thing about both Grief Observed and this book that seem a little whiny to me, um, if I can say that about Lewis, Lewis married her knowing she was going to die. Why was he so upset that she died? (laughs) I never thought of that. (laughs) And even had she not had cancer, even if they had lived to be the oldest people of their generation, they still would have gotten sick and died. Right. Right. And one would have likely, unless you know, barring some accident, one would have one one would have gone first uh, into death. And so, there's this sense at which I think that he do, he's wise to grapple with the fact that yes, time happens to us, and even in our idyllic times. I mean, I'm planning a trip to England, you know, to Oxford. Uh, but there's yes, lots of things to book and and things to do, and it's going to be expensive, and you know. It's, it's going to have all of the hassles. 
But I think what you do is you look for and you seize the eternal moments or the moments that ring of timelessness somewhere. And I need help tracking it down and I'm remembering it wrongly. Um, uh, but it's been years since I put my fingers on the exact quote. But Lewis says that time fits us badly like a bad suit of clothes. What drags, it races. And, mm. and this happens because we are eternal creatures. Our souls were built for millions of years. And so being in time and even being in matter, while that's married to who we are, being in time is artificial for us. It is not how it should be. And it should always set us longing for that heavenly home, that new Jerusalem. And so this sense that time doesn't fit us right is a true sense because time was not designed for us. God has got a stopwatch that begins with in the beginning and ends with even so come Lord Jesus. And time is a dime in his hand. It has a beginning and an end, and it's just something that he could toss away. We are meant for eternity. And this is some of what, what Van is struggling with here, because mm-hmm. Davy has entered into her eternal, the eternality of herself, right? Yes. And Van is still struggling along. Now Van has since passed away, and he's now entered eternity. But it's it points to the fact that our souls are eternal, and our bodies are eternal. And we were made for endlessness, but we are mm-hmm. trapped in time. So I think that's some of what he's doing here. Yeah. When I love what Lewis responds, because by this point, he has sent Lewis his long letter mm-hmm. that he doesn't show us. So we don't really know what's in it, but he essentially had explained to him their love, their shining barrier, all this stuff. He'd finished the illumination of the past, which I would argue probably was the beginning stages of this book. And he says, Lewis responds with this. And I love this. If a man diligently followed this desire for timelessness, for joy, pursuing the false objects, the schooner, all these things that they were pursuing, until their falsity appeared and then resolutely abandoning them, Davy did a really good job with that. Mm-hmm. He must come out at last into the clear knowledge that the human soul was made to enjoy some object that is never fully given. Nay, cannot even be imagined as given in our present mode of subjective and spatial temporal experience. And this and this goes back to what you and I talked about, Andrew, on one of the, I think it was maybe the first part we recorded them at the same time. So I don't remember which part, but of like, I think this is why you can't judge a person on where they are in their journey. They might still be in the pursuing the false objects. And Christ knows that, and he knows they're about six years away from realizing those false objects are going to lead to despair, and they're going to ter- they're going to fully abandon them for him. That doesn't mean we don't help them on that journey. That doesn't mean mm-hmm. we don't see a person pursuing false objects and say, oh, God's got it, let's walk away. You might be a thing that can help them, but that definitely means you don't judge them for pursuing those false objects. I think that's just such a truth in this book. But we also can bear witness to their falsity if that's something that they can hear, if it's loving, if they can Mm -hmm. hear us saying, hey, this is false, which may ring true for them today or it may ring true for them, you know, a dozen years from now. Um, I I couldn't help but think of Lewis's own spiritual journey. If a man diligently followed this desire, pursuing the false objects until their falsity appeared and then resolutely abandoning them, that's Lewis's own spiritual journey. 
that you see in <laughs> Surprised by Joy yes. and in Early Prose Joy. Um, and it also reminds me of Lewis's second best book. He says, uh, no one who seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Right. But what you see. This episode has been a dagger to the great divorce's case for the well, best no, book. Well, no, it's no. I think that it speaks to the holisticness of Lewis because look at how great divorcee in this is pursuing false objects until their falsity appeared and then resolutely abandoning them, which is That's what happens word. to those who go to heaven. And it's resolutely clinging to them is what happens to those who go back to the great town. Yes. So mm. that's what's going on. And so Lewis resolutely abandons anything that doesn't lead to joy. And then he says, of course, at the end of Surprise by Joy, what then of joy? It served as a pointer to something other and outer. And the other and outer is God and God's love, but it's never fully given and cannot even be imagined as given, he says. We don't even have an imagination as to what timelessness looks like any more than we have an imagination as to what materiality, non-materiality looks like. <laughs> In the beginning, God created the heavens and earth. In the beginning starts time. And God creating heavens and earth starts matter. And we are built within the context of in the beginning and matter, of time and matter. We can't imagine the day before Adam was born because we are temporal. And that's what he says. In our present mode of subjective, not objective, I can only deal with myself as a subject, and spatio-temporal experience. My experience is within, is within the confines of space or matter, like I just said, and time. And Davy has now entered into eternity, right? And so that's the struggle. And part of what he's, he's dealing with in this grief and part of what Lewis points out is we were made for something more than just what we see, even if we live the longest of lives. And that's the, the mercy that he comes to at the end. Well, I'm about to read a quote that could be unpacked for 10 minutes and tease it and say, let's not unpack it so we can move to the next section. But I don't want to leave the quote unsaid. <laughs> this, is from, this is from Van now. And I think there's so much truth to this. I came to wonder whether all objects that men and women set their hearts upon, even the darkest and most obsessive desires, do not begin as imitations of joy from the soul spring of joy. God. Intimations, not imitations. Thank you. Hints. But yes. I mean, I think imitations too. They're hints of Actually, joy. Actually, both would work. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, um, and anybody who pursues anything with passion echoes to some small degree, small or large degree, the passion of Christ, right? Mm -hmm. All objects of all thought, all objects that we love are echoes of what God will give us, right? And ask for the morning star or ask and take thrown in everything else, right? And so it's weight of glory. It's um it's the five the five sonnets that, that Van refers to. Anything, these are hints, these are glimpses, these are patches of Godlight, Lewis says. These are these are intimations, these are hints that will turn us out of ourselves towards the other who loves us so. And that's what happens with Davy and Van. Well, let's turn to the final, the second of the two thoughts, God's eternal mercy. For listeners, we're now turning to the idea of the severe mercy. And similarly, there was way too many quotes that I wanted to bring in here, so I'm <laughs> going to read them to tee this up, and then Andrew, you and I can talk about it. 
the thought of this idea of God's eternal mercy for him was, was spurred by a response from Lewis. And before diving in, here was Lewis's thoughts. And I, I want to start with this because this is Lewis's thoughts. He, he had detailed to Lewis the entire gray goose, shining barrier, all this stuff you and I are reading now. Mm-hmm. He somewhat put the initial stages of this together after the illumination of the past for Lewis. Let me tee it up. Lewis was a little harsh in here, but it was a tender harshness. It was a love. And I am absolutely blown away at Van's acceptance to this. So honestly, I just want to read this. What would the grocer, Lewis, let me first tee one thing up too. Lewis splits this into various people's perspective on the story of Davy and Van. So we're going to have the grocer pagans, the higher pagans, Stoics, Christians, how they would all view this story that we've all just talked about for the last three episodes. What would the grocer pagans think? Well, they'd say there was excess in it, that it would provoke the nemesis of the gods. They would see the red light. Go up one. The finer pagans would blame each withdrawal from the claims of common humanity as unmanly, uncitizenly. I didn't know what this word meant, and I didn't look it up. Uxorious? That has to do with one's wife. And so um, they would find him unmanly because he um, he's he's too, uh, too enslaved to his wife. All right. So, I mean, Lewis is saying this is like how people would view the story he just told them. So he might be thinking it was some beautiful story. And now he's getting some pretty harsh words. If Stoics, they would say that to try to rest part of the whole us, meaning like the us of Davy and Van into a self-sufficing whole on its own was contrary to nature. Then come to Christians. They would, of course, agree that man and wife are one flesh. So he's kind of saying the Christians would see some beauty in their story. They would perhaps admit that this was the most admirably realized by Gene in you. But surely they would add that this one flesh must not, and in the long run cannot, live to itself any more than the single individual. It was not made any more than he to be its own end. We talked about this in the first episode. The 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 problem of the shining barrier was the end was it, not God. Mm-hmm. Gene, by the way, is um is Davy's given name, and so when Lewis <clears throat> refers yep. to Gene, he's speaking about Davy. I like that. So continuing, it was made for God and in Him for its neighbors. That's the end it was supposed to be for. First and foremost, among them, the children it ought to have produced. Kind of direct there too. The idea behind your involuntary sterility, that an experience which cannot be shared should on that account be avoided, is surely very unsound. This is intense. Now it's continuing here. One way or another, the thing had to die. I skipped some stuff in the letter, by the way. Mm -hmm. Perpetual springtime is not allowed. You are not cutting the wood of life according to the grain. There are various possible ways in which it could have died, though both parties, both the parties went on living. So he's almost saying it could have died other ways and uh, Davy did not have to die. You have been treated with a severe mercy. You have been brought to see how true and how very frequent this is that you were jealous of God. He's speaking to Van right now. Mm. So from us, meaning like Van and Davy, you had been led back to us and God. That's where he was at when when Davy died. It remains to go to God and us. So what he's essentially saying is for Van, the us was still before God, him and Davy. Now for Davy, it was God and us. 
Um, and that's where the jealousy because of that dichotomy was. He um, he capitalizes. So he's Lewis is saying to 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 Van, okay. At first it was us capital U at capital S. It was that's all you had was us, and then it became God and us, um, or us and God, or us and God. And that's where yeah. Van wanted it to stay. A polite yes. God who let me do what I wanted to do when I wanted him, and then went away when I didn't. And we know yes. what happens. Uh, when you try to put the put us into those terms, um, so from us to God and us, and that's where Van us, got stuck. Real quick, so from yeah. us to us and God. I'm sorry, for us, <laughs> yep. us and God, and that's where Van got stuck, and then yep. God and us, and then just God, which is where Davy finished off. Yes, and that's what he even says right here. He goes, "She was further on than you." And she can help you more where she now is than she could have done on earth. You must go on. That is one of the many reasons why suicide is out of the question. Remember, they had, I don't actually know if we fully directly hit that, but they had agreed if they were to die, they would make sure they died together. And that's why the gray goose, remember the mate, I guess the gray goose didn't kill himself, but they never would mate with anyone else. But um, yeah, they had agreed to essentially potentially die together. Mm -hmm. Um, Kind of insane. Another is the absence of any ground for belief that death by that route would unite you with her. Why should it? You might be digging an eternally unabridgable chasm. Chasm. chasm yeah. Disobedience is not the way to get near to the obedient. Mm-hmm. All right. We're continuing, guys. There's just so much here. Now we're going to unpack this. There's no other man in such affliction as yours to whom I'd write so plainly. And that, if you can believe me, is the strongest proof of my belief in you and love from, for you. To fools and weaklings, one writes soft things. You spared her very wrongly the pains, wow, of childbirth. Do not evade your own, the travail you must undergo while Christ is being born in you. Do you imagine she herself can now have any greater care about you than that this spiritual maternity of yours should be patiently suffered and joyfully delivered. And he doesn't put this, I don't think he quoted the entire letter, but he said later on, it said one way or the other, the thing had to die. Mm -hmm. So this was a whole long letter where Lewis essentially just painted a picture where because you could not get from us and God to God and us and to ultimately God, and Davy was already there, she had to go. Now, Lewis is kind of suggesting that. I'm kind of in your camp, Andrew. I'm not sure we can really fully jump to that. Maybe God was using this. He could have potentially used something 10 years later if they did live. I think it's hard to fully say, like, that God, (laughs) is this because he could not get there? Did God do this? Maybe. I think Lewis is suggesting yes, and it's a severe mercy that he did. But this is there's a lot here, so I'm gonna I'm gonna stop talking and let you kind of chime in here, Andrew. The highest does not stand without the lowest. And nothing that has not died will ever be raised from the dead, mm. right? And so these are princ- these are Lewisian principles that we see at work here. One way or another, you know. And Van uh, Van later, you know, he he enunciates there were three possibilities. I had to get over myself and love Christ. I had to, in. you know, kind of damage or lessen her commitment. I had to pull Davy from Christ mm-hmm. or I had to hate Davy or hate Christ or both. And yes. those are the only three possibilities. And God was going to have all of Van's heart regardless. Did Davy need to die in order for God to win Van's heart? No. 
But did God use Davy's death to win Van's heart? Yes. So it's not this God who's going to snatch away the people that you love until you only love him. God is jealous, but not in that way, right? And if they had continued married and continued healthy, something would have had to change and something would have broken. It would either have been Van's stubbornness or it would have been their marriage or it would have been Davy's faith. And I think that he properly kind of enunciates those three possibilities. Let me see this though. I'm gonna I'm gonna push back a little bit, Andrew. Okay. So I, I, I'm not gonna try to take a stance because it's, it's 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 an impossible one to take. But could God have seen? So because I, I know what you're saying, you're kind of saying, you know, the the death was potentially going to happen, and God used it as a beautiful chance to pull Van to Him. And I think mm-hmm. that's a very real possibility. I'm not gonna argue that that didn't happen. I don't really know, but I would say there is a chance, and I'm curious your thoughts that maybe God, you know, outside of time, could see the future. And without Van Davy dying, he was never going to get the obstinate heart. Like and it, it, Aslan's he, he growling at you now because yeah. we never get to know anyone else's story, and we yeah. never get to know what might have been yep. or what would have been. And you're in the Calvinist dilemma. So since we can't know, is it fair to say that there could be a scenario where God did actually have to take her for Van salvation? And for her, we can't say he did, but we also can't say he didn't because we don't know the story. I think it's a bootless argument. I think that Aslan would say, okay, stop wasting time on the what ifs, you know, deal Mm -hmm. with what the, what the nows are, you know? And I mean, in Lewis's own life, I mean, he faced the same thing. Did God need to take Joy Davidman? We don't know why. And, yeah. and some of that is not God taking Joy Davidman. Some of that is the curse. Some of that is the fact yes. that we live in a cursed world, a fallen world in which illness runs its course and takes its yes. place. But eventually, Davy would have died mm-hmm. and Van would have died because we know mm-hmm. that Van died of kind of natural causes and the Lord hasn't come back. The only two possibilities are that the Lord comes back and takes us alive or that we die. And that's just the doorway that we all have to go through. And so, um, yeah, to I think to go the to go the what ifs is maybe not fruitful. He would Van would have had to have dealt with Davy's death, even if he died first. He would have had to grapple with you know the idea of losing her. So, well, and let's go back to that line. One way or another, the thing had to die. Mm-hmm. I wanted us just to briefly stress this question. I think there's a really important truth in this that we actually somewhat talked about earlier when I just shared a little bit of things that I have at idols in my life. And I think when I read that, I would I realized this is a question that every Christian should ponder. What are the idols in our life that need to die? Mm-hmm. And how could the more obstinately we are holding on to them be hurting us? I'm not going to go to the extreme of God's going to kill something to do that. But if if you, if God, let's hold a couple things in tension with themselves. If God knows you genuinely love him and you desire him and you want the fullness of communion with him, but he also sees you absolutely holding on to some idol, he's going to kill it. <laughs> let's just say that one way or the other. Now, hopefully it doesn't need to be some extreme amputation. Maybe it's, it's, it's some more subtle way, but like that idol is going to be killed if he, if if he's, because he's, his grace is so incredible and his merciful love is so incredible. But the more obstinately you hold on to it, 
probably the more painful that killing is going to be. Mm-hmm. The more deep that surgery needs to be, uh, the more he needs to open you up and break things down. And so I do think there might be some truth in saying like, the more willing we are to surrender our idols, potentially the less painful. I don't know if that's a statement I can make, but potentially the less painful it will be because we're not obstinately holding on to it. Mm-hmm. And so I guess I guess to encourage listeners, I'm just curious if you sort of somewhat agree with that statement that I just made there. And Well, I'd encourage you to a reading of The Great Divorce. <laughs> what book is that? I've never heard that. It's probably yeah. one of Lewis's best ones. I'm saving it for last. It's It's one of them. It's up there, um, but it's the it's the angel and the red lizard, right? And so, even the idols that we make have at their root something good, right? And yes. so, what selfishness do I need to kill in this idol that I have made in order for it to be transformed into the kind of steed that will allow me to ride ahead of everyone, right? People who are giving themselves to an idol or who are praying to an idol, either ancient in the ancient world or in ours um, and, and in my own world, there's got to be something good in that that I'm seeking out. So what is the good that God will resurrect once I allow the falseness of it to die in the same way that the red lizard was, uh, was harmful? and needed to die. And the angel said, will you let me kill it? Will you let me kill it? Right. And if he hadn't, he would have ended up in the gray town and he would have been, he would have, you know, died the second death himself. Um, And so this is, this is how God works. He only kills in order to save us, in order to resurrect us. He only kills a thing in order to raise it in its true fullness. That's why all of the sins is, you know, like he talks about in Screwtape, sins are perversions of goodness, twisted goodness. And so how can we allow God to make something straight? Um, sometimes it, it has to be killed. And Van and Van's love for Davy had to be straightened out. And that would have taken place one way or the other. Well, that segues beautifully into the very last thing I'll say before we wrap it up with some concluding thoughts. So her death brought me, as nothing else could do, to know and end my jealousy of God. It saved her faith from my assault. It brought me, if Lewis is right, her far greater help from eternity. And it saved our love from perishing in one of the other ways that Andrew pointed out, the three other ways, that love could perish. I guess two other ways in that case. Did he doom her? Because he asked this question. He doesn't know, but he's at peace about it. So from there, Andrew, first, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, but I'm I'm just curious too, just some concluding thoughts, you know, as as we've wrapped this book up, you know, now that we've gone through it, slowly unpacked it, we've we've talked through this. What are what are some high level things that just kind of hit you? The beauty in it, some things you struggle with. But before I do that, I just want to return to this. One way or another, the thing had to die. You have been tre- treated with a severe mercy. Severe meaning extreme, and that to me is the thing that comes back to me again and again in the years since I read this book. The irony of Lewis going through it himself. And by the way, there's a clear, clear echo. Lewis says before before marrying Joy Davidman, Lewis mentions Dante and the Eternal Fountain. And the last line 
of um, of grief observed when Joy Davidman is dying. Um, he Lewis says Lewis writes, and then she smiled, but not at me. Mm. eterno a la eterna fontana, and then she turned to the eternal fountain. And so Lewis uses this phrase that he writes to 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 um to to Van five years before Joy's death, two years before he married her, right? He uses this phrase about the eternal fountain as a way to frame up his own loss of his own wife. So this phrase is there. The only way to Easter is through Good Friday, right? Mm, the only way to get to life is through death, right? Mm. Um, we know this because of the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord. And so what do we have here is this powerful, powerful parable about how something has to die in order to live again. And that to me, um the the some of the some of the excesses of this book, some of the the things that I noticed that that I, you know, perhaps didn't like as much this time as as when I first read it, and all of the glories of it, and, and there are great glories in this book, and I look forward to talking about some of these things uh, in an interview with Will Voss uh, coming up. I alluded to this briefly earlier in this episode, but this last part made me like have grace for the excesses, mm-hmm. because if you think about it, the personality that led them to the excesses led to like the excess of surrender, the excess of diving all in, the excess of like everything. And yes. I just, it gave me some sympathy towards that personality trait because it's that same trait that led to their all in this. Um, Nothing in us yes. that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. And yes. anything in us, even the most terrible thing in us, has in its roots something good that has been mm-hmm. twisted and needs setting straight. Which and so pretty that much to me his is- quote. Mm-hmm. That I read earlier in this episode of like the, I came to wonder whether all objects that men and women set their hearts upon, even the darkest and most obsessive desires, do not begin as intimations of joy. Of it's course, pretty much what you're saying in a different they do. way. Yeah, of course they do. So I that that hit me. I'll say the the last part we just talked about for honestly a while. The timelessness and God's severe mercy. That was a really powerful chapter that pierced my soul in many ways. I, I asked myself idols that I need to kill. Ways mm-hmm. that God's been merciful and painful. If I were to look back over the last five years and pains that I've experienced and suffering might have been severe mercies. Uh, the timelessness helped me ask myself which goals, dreams, visions, passions might be just a, a, a longing for eternity. Uh, so that that last part, I loved Davy's beauty throughout this. I mm-hmm. loved how all in she was. I loved how she touched the people around her. I loved her vulnerability. And I was, and I just resonated with, and resonated might not be the right word. It was almost like I, I couldn't even relate to being able to do that. I was like, I want that, I desire that, I long for what she can do. I can't do it. The vulnerability, oh, oof. Uh, I'd have to get rid of my self centeredness. I mean, she just pours into other people. So that that hit me, and I just love their openness to critique. I mean, I read a lot of what Lewis wrote. Our listeners now heard a good chunk of that letter. I mean, dang. I'd feel a little defensiveness. I share my life story and the person practically calls it out as pagans, higher pagans, stoics. They're all going to say there's something way wrong with it. Mm-hmm. The excess is the self-centeredness. I mean, like, holy cow, mm-hmm. smack in the face from Lewis. And Lewis even knew it. And he wrote like, I would only do this because I love you. 
and because they were they they were honest with each other. And I yes. you know I I need to reprove you. You say oh I couldn't be that vulnerable, but I just heard you being vulnerable. And we follow the path of vulnerability, of woundability, and we get to where we need to be by you know by following that path. And yes, it's you know this is an an extreme example and a and a and a and a great parable, but. But we, you know, we see these kinds of things uh, every day, um, and it all happens if I say yes to Christ between now and bedtime. Mm. Let me close with Keep this. Challenging me. Yes, this is a poem that Lewis wrote to Joy Davidman as mm. she was dying, and so this is a poem he wrote about five years after his letters to Sheldon Van Aken. So some of it's still fresh on his mind. It's a poem called As the Ruin Falls. And I must confess that I know it mostly because Phil Keggy set the song to set the poem to music years ago. And I memorized it then. As the Ruin Falls, a poem by Lewis to a dying Joy Davidman, we assume. All this is flashy rhetoric about loving you I never had a selfless thought since I was born. I am mercenary and self-seeking through and through. I want God, you, all friends, merely to serve my turn. Peace, reassurance, pleasures are the goals I seek. I cannot crawl one inch outside my proper skin. I talk of love. A scholar's parrot may talk Greek but self-imprisoned always end where I begin. Only that now you have taught me, but how late my lack, I see the chasm. And everything you are was making my heart into a bridge by which I might get back from exile and grow man. But now the bridge is breaking. For this I bless you as the ruin falls. The pains you give me are more precious than all other gains. Only place we can be safe from the dangers and perturbations of love is hell, for loves tells us. And this has been a powerful reminder of those truths. And I'm so grateful for the honesty of Sheldon Van Aken in telling us the story of him and Davy. Andrew, we're going to end on that note because that was beautiful. Well, that's the bell for the last call. In the next episode, I'll be interviewing Will Voss about his biography of the author of Severe Mercy, Sheldon Van Aken. So looking forward to connecting with my old friend again. His book, Will yes. Voss, V-A-U-S, his book is called The Man Who Received a Severe Mercy. And hopefully, I will be interviewing a friend. It's it's being coordinated and scheduled right now, so I hope I don't tease this and it doesn't happen, but I think it will, who is a very brilliant uh, professor at Notre Dame, my college, who teaches constitutional law, but he decides he does a mini breakout of a few classes to teach this book. Mm. Just because it's such impactful, so we're, we're we're looking right now, and I think it'll happen. But we'll have him, uh, his uh, a person that works with him, and a couple of students. We're going to dive into this and just the impact that this book has had. So I'm very looking forward to that. So I'm not sure we'll if we'll we'll drop that on this feed or if uh, that will go through the YouTube channel. So make sure you're keeping your eye out for the YouTube channel because if if we pull that together, I think it's going to be an incredible conversation mm. uh, with them. 
And, you know, we want to thank you all for spending, it's usually an hour. This is an hour and a half. <laughs> We're almost an hour and 40 minutes uh, with us. But I, I, I think it was just an incredibly beautiful conversation. And so I, I appreciate you guys sticking with us. Yeah, um, absolutely. We also want to thank our Patreon supporters, particularly our top tier supporters who make so much happen and who make this, 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 uh, this podcast happen in so many ways. They're such a severe mercy to us. Yes. Mostly mercy. Marvin, Mostly mercy, yes. Marvin, Joel, Angela, Deborah, one, Deborah, two, Amanda, Thomas, Anarnia Mouse, uh, Bill and Joanna, Snort and Bud, Shane and John, Kevin, Brian and Kay, Paul, Kimberly, Gillis, Gary, Stephen, Matt, Kelly, Chris and John, James, Kate and Peter, David and Rowdy. So if you've enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. And please join us next time when we'll be going further up and further in. Cheers. Cheers.